This is something that I wrote for somebody. Let's lock your broken door and cover the windows with blankets. Turn off the lights, but leave those two candles burning and speak with me in shadows. Let your fingertips light a fire so that you can finally see those questions that I'm dying to ask. Answer them for me and I will tell you that I need you with sweat dripping from my palms. Don't breathe. Just hold. And nothing will ever change. Hold my breath as we swim beneath your sheets and don't let a moment sink because a moment is forever and memories don't fade when you hide them in this place. I promise you this. Forget the sounds of the cars. Forget the voices of the television. The laughter in the hallway. The heat in the air, buzzing of lights, spinning of thoughts. Blink the eye, touch of the skin, taste of the lips. I don't know what this is. But it's as real as the hangover hanging over our heads. Let's tell each other secrets. Bury our souls inside the other. Teach children to dance and hold hands in the dark. Let's share the air and see forever. Come taste the waiting that I'm drowning in. My name is Tommy Burleson. Welcome, everybody. You're listening to Monster. Но ничто еще меня не обезболивало так, как она и ее губы в меланхолии Я смотрю по сторонам и совсем никого не вижу Моя жизнь напоминает ураган перед затишем Эти фейковые люди, что не нужно даже им же Эти бляди, что ведутся на поплоне Я нечаянно ощущаю, что я в музыке один Завалены вещами, что на них как керосин Твоя жизнь на болтовне, инстаграмом и на сир Привыкать это не думать, привыкать это инстинкт Вам не тысячи причин, а мне не вылечить их чин Сегодня голова забита только челичин Мне все чаще нужен тормоз, чтобы понять, куда мы мчим Я охладею, пусть и тоже, что Drifting now, every once in every week It's time to be By the end of December, I'd been in Latvia for six weeks and was fully living a destructive double life. On one hand, I was working my ass off all day long trying to reverse engineer our troubled movie into something of substance. I'd found a real partner both creatively and intellectually in Mariana, and I had the support of our eccentric financier. But my head was swimming in chaos, privately concerned that there were no real solutions to the broken script that I was tasked to fix. I'd been avoiding phone calls from my family, was drinking heavily alone each night just to get to sleep, and feeling an increasing guilt as Olivia's arrival approached. Why did I let my relationship with Mariana get out of control like this? Why was I having a girl fly to meet me for New Year's when I should be with my family or working? Why was I drinking again? Why had a mysterious Eastern European businessman become my closest friend? As I was recording this, I was looking back at the New Year's trip I took with Olivia and thinking what a truly amazing person she was. What an incredible time we had. I remember driving through the snow with her, listening to music and holding hands, arriving in Tallinn and navigating the narrow medieval streets until we found the apartment that I'd rented for the weekend, listening to Tom Waits while we smoked cigarettes inside and sat naked with each other, watching snow fall in the town square packed with happy people and decorated for the holidays. I remember dancing through the puddles at midnight, kissing as the bells rang and drinking warm, muddled wine. I remember saying out loud how lucky we were, what a privileged experience it was to be in a place like this with a person like her, how when I was feeling low, I'd look back at that night and remember how happy I was and feel lucky to have ever touched a moment so close to perfect. And I wasn't lying. So then why, after the trip ended and we went back to Riga, did I leave her sitting inside my apartment while I went to work? Why did I leave her to wander the streets alone? And when she wanted to stay... When she wanted to be there with me in Latvia for the rest of production, why did I pull away? If I'd really fallen for her, then why would I make her leave? And when she asked me about Mariana, driven by some sick sense that people so often seem to have, why was I a fucking liar? Why was I afraid? How is it possible that I still don't know while I sit inside this closet confiding my secrets into a microphone? How the fuck did I get here? As I considered all this, I just felt even more confused, so I thought I'd call Jane to ask her what she remembered. Jane's my therapist, and my friend. I was sleeping on her couch in New York when Olivia and I finally connected, and I spoke to Jane regularly throughout my entire trip abroad. Maybe she'd remember something that could help me understand what I was thinking. Jane? Yeah? Hey, okay, so you are now being recorded. Can you hear me well? I can hear you. Perfectly. Okay, great. 
yeah, so the reason why I, I wanted to chat with you for a moment um, mm. is because I'm going back to where uh, comes out to Latvia to visit. And where you could come in and be very helpful is if you have any specific recollections about my relationship with while I was staying with you in Brooklyn before I went to Latvia. Well, this doesn't have to do directly with her, but I can just, I'm going to say what pops to my mind. I think what pops out most is that you were a little bit of an emotional roller coaster with regard to whether the project was even worth doing. Um, You had a tremendous amount of um, fear, I think. And you might have processed that fear as maybe this project is not worthwhile um, what am I doing? This could ruin me. Like you were very agitated, actually, and yet yeah. then you were. Then I think you were also agitated with your agitation. Like so, you were swinging back and forth between thinking this is like going to kill me, ruin my reputation because you had a lot of mixed feelings about it, and it wasn't your dream project. And yet then you didn't like yourself for even doubting it and not being grateful for the opportunity. So maybe that's where your love and your spinning toward her might have been a little bit of an anesthesia for yourself based on how unsettled you were feeling about going to this foreign country with a project you had some ambivalence about. So you found, and suddenly there was no ambivalence in sight. She is it. She's the one. Oh, you were just melting. I mean, I remember vividly she was playing the piano for you and that just blew you away and you were just like, totally taken. She's exactly your type physically. Everything, all the ducks were lined up with regard to her, whereas your anxiety about the projects was probably overwhelming. So that main mood that I saw happening, and I also feel it was very probably connected with how you fell in love with her. Hearing somebody else articulate the ambivalence about whether or not I should even be going out there to do this movie, whether it was worth it for me and whether it was a good mm-hmm. idea. I and you thought it might ruin not, you. you. And I thought that thought it might it ruin, ruin you. Yeah, ruin I you. thought it yeah. would ruin me. And I I sort of forgot that or I disconnected that feeling, disconnected from that feeling. Mm. I didn't remember that till right now. Well, I have a question. Um, I mean, am I allowed to like just ask you a question now because I do have a question. There are no rules. Okay, so that that makes me wonder. Um, it's an interesting thing to have sort of uh, deleted from your memory. W- what do you make of that? What do you think that actually means? Why do you think you would have not remembered that? Do you, Do you have any insight into that? While I prep my movie during the day, working with my producers and designers, location scouting, hiring crew, and rewriting the script, a whole other world was being introduced to me at night. Destan's world. When Destan eats at a restaurant, he closes it down. One of his guys waits in the car while the other keeps watch by the door and we talk about everything. But he especially likes getting deep because he's a smart man, but he also fancies himself a philosopher. We come into each other's lives with a purpose and we change each other. How have you changed today? I had dinners with his family, played with his kids, I partied with his girlfriends, I went to the bonny with his cousins. He introduced me to his friends and business partners. And anywhere he asked, I went. This is my director, Tommy. Tell me about art, Tommy. Tell me about stories, Tommy. Tell me about that beautiful movie, Tommy. And on one level, I truly was his friend. I was a young American artist and he thought I was interesting. But on another level, I was just like his toy, this thing that he liked to play with. I'd hang out and put on a show, and then eventually his eyes would harden. Okay, Tommy, you may go. And it was always like that with him. 
this intense kindness that would suddenly flip. Because another thing about Destan is he always wanted control over everything and everybody. His girlfriends being under contract should have been the first indicator that our ethical landscapes may be slightly different than one another. And I also heard more than a couple stories that were objectively disturbing about business deals gone south. And you'd think that this would all really rub me the wrong way, and it did. But it's hard for me to overstate how mind-blowing all of this was for me. To spend so much time with and be so important to a person that powerful? I mean, I'm a middle-class kid from Southern California. Traveling to Eastern Europe to make a movie is already wild to me. But hanging with probable members of organized crime casually? A dude who back home strolls down the street flanked by guys with guns? In LA? I live in a small apartment off Sunset Boulevard and struggle to make ends meet. I'm one of many thousands of desperately aspiring filmmakers. I spend most of my days feeling like a fraud. I stress out about being a bad son, about my mom's bad health, about being lonely and missing my ex-girlfriends. I battle with addictions and I really, I really just want to be liked. But here in Latvia, I am a big Hollywood director. I'm making a movie. I have a beautiful top floor apartment and I'm Destan's guy. Everybody looks at me differently here. And so I look at me differently. This whole job came to me initially in sort of a strange and unexpected way. One of my closest friends and collaborators is a guy named Bryce McGuire, and he was actually set to direct the movie. And I'd talked to him about the project, obviously, over the course of the previous year as it was coming together because of that. I was helping with script notes or just general friendly filmmaker advice. But when a scheduling conflict came up, he lost the project. And I had just finished post on my first feature, And so I was brought into the mix as a potential director and obviously ended up winning the job. So since Bryce was there every step of the way, both before and after I was helming the movie, he seemed like another really good person for me to talk to, to help me get some perspective on how I was acting during this particular part of my um, experience. I definitely saw you emboldened by the confidence that comes from people kind of making the, the idealized version of yourself a reality. And I feel like you, at a certain point, were just like doing whatever you wanted to do. D- don't put this on the podcast because I don't think you should do this. I don't think this should be a part of it. But I remember you being like, we have to fire. Yeah. Which is like, yeah. it was her project. It was her script. And I, I think that was one example of like, wow, like every conversation became more extreme in what you were doing with the script and what you're getting access to and even getting more money from like all of that stuff was like, I, I, I knew they must be kind of, you were in control over there. Destan and I got so close that when we needed more money, the producer sent me in to go get it. Destan. Okay, I rewrote the end of the movie because I think that it's important. And that makes for 15 additional pages. Now, 15 pages means two days, and each day is 50K. So that's $100,000, and it just is what it is. Tommy, 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 calm down. I read these pages. I like these pages. Do you like these pages? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Do you think these pages make a better movie, Tommy? Tell me. Come on, look at me. Yeah. Then it's no problem, man. Come on. I'll fix you. And with a handshake and a smile, a hundred grand. Done. Perhaps to some people that doesn't sound like a big deal, but to me, to sit down with somebody and express my creative dreams and have them trust me so implicitly that a hundred thousand dollars is a handshake away, it was intoxicating. And I was addicted to that feeling. But while all this was happening, Destan always made it clear that he was the boss, that he was in control. And if I ever stepped out of line, it put me right back in my place. When when our phone calls are happening, what was I presenting as my reality with before I knew it was going there? Was I just talking about how it balling out, man? Yeah, ball, balling out, gangster shit. You know, I, I feel like I definitely had this kind of Orson Welles kind of godfather view of what of of him there was a respect and maybe like an intimidation but i didn't sense like uh the fear that maybe would kind of seep into that relationship 
later it just was kind of like, this is crazy. I'm doing all this crazy stuff. Like, you're not going to believe this, man. You're not going to believe the things that are happening to me. Part of it was you kind of throwing yourself into everything so fully, kind of knowing that, like, you were living this thing that was going to be formative somehow. Like, I'm going to be able to use this, so I'm willing to kind of be that, like, Nick Carraway and The Great Gatsby where, like, I'm this weird journalist who's, like, throwing myself into a world I don't belong. There was a, there was a movie within a movie. You were living a movie while making a movie. And now, I yeah. think even while it was happening, you were weirdly aware of that. And I know I'm painting Distan as intimidating, and he was extremely, and controlling. He'd never take no for an answer if I couldn't see him, or if he wanted to come over after dinner to keep hanging out, or if he wanted to go to a party. I definitely became this outlet for him, and it was taxing and exhausting, and in my own private thoughts, I actually started to become a little afraid of him, because I didn't ever want to upset him, or as he'd put it, disappoint him. Like when we went to the Banya, which is this traditional Russian bathhouse where you get beaten by branches and jump into these ice lakes, he was videotaping me while I was naked. You know, it was playful. He was chasing me around in the snow and he was next to me inside the hothouse. But the thing is, I didn't feel like I could tell him not to. But I also didn't understand why he felt comfortable doing that. Maybe he was like feeling uh, alive around you. I don't know, because you have that, that energy, like everything is always moving around you and everything is so creatively like full of energy and then I mean I think that he wanted to be part of that and maybe he was like trying to escape somewhere when he saw you in some kind of way I think he wanted to be you but all that said I was also having some of the most stimulating and heartfelt conversations of my entire life with this man he was sharing things with me because we connected and I I really think that he wanted to change our lives are a story, Tomer. I will change my story today. What will you do with yours? We both wanted to be better men than we currently were. We both wanted to be different men than we currently were, and we saw that in each other. And even though I was off-put by his control and some of the personal or business details of his life, I also identified with them. I mean, I'm a director. And I'm a director because I love telling stories and I love working with actors and because I see life as this narrative, but I'm not totally naive. I'm also a director because I'm controlling too. It comes with the territory. I'm overly assertive, bizarrely confident when I'm not imploding internally. I'm demanding and I can never ever work for other people. So yeah, Destan and I work in very different businesses and we come from very different backgrounds. But maybe he was right. We are both wolves. And maybe the truth is, I wasn't just tolerant that he had a more complicated moral landscape than me. Maybe I was actually drawn to that. Right before we started shooting, the L.A. producers flew out for a celebratory dinner. It was me, Destan, his girls, the L.A. and Latvia teams, plus a few of the stars. Everybody was drinking and having a good time, and toward the end of the dinner, folks started giving speeches because that's what they do there. Thanking each other, sharing stories, passing off words of wisdom. And when it was my turn, I jumped in and said my thank yous, and told a couple of jokes about the team. One of them was about Destan, and it wasn't even that funny, but for some reason, a couple of people cracked up. Hard. Destan went ice cold and started staring holes through me for the next five minutes. He then proceeded to don a dark mask of a smile and pull the phone from his pocket. Tommy, you don't mind if I show them the Bonnie video, do you? At the ice lake, this fucker is crazy. He jumped right in. Um, I don't know if we want to be sharing that video at the dinner table. Shut up. Everybody got quiet. 
Distan threw back on his mask of a smile. Here, look at this video. He played the video of me coming out of the ice lake and him chasing me through the snow, passing the phone from the producers to the actresses on and on, and making each person take a moment to watch. Look at this little dick. I've never been the most confident person about my body, but at 31, I was comfortable with myself. Comfortable enough. I'd gotten over most of my insecurities, you know, and as as my dad says, it is what it is. But to be broadcasting naked videos of me coming out of an ice lake in a professional setting in front of my female collaborators and mocking my ice-cold shrunken penis... It was incredibly uncomfortable for everybody. After dinner, he insisted to drive me home. We didn't talk the whole way back, and when we finally got to my place, I opened the door and he grabbed me by the shoulder. How are you sleeping, man? Um, not great, actually. We're pretty wall-to-wall, but I'm all right. No, no. You need to get your rest, man. You're an important guy, right? Tommy, I have something for you. I'll leave for Bulgaria tomorrow, but I'll have my cousin come see you, okay? Uh, okay, thanks. He stared hard into my eyes. Don't ever make me joke, Tommy. I like you, but I'm the boss. Good luck with our movie, huh? Have a good night. I closed the door and watched as he took off when it hit me. Holy shit, I'm about to make a movie. <laughs> It's 3.30 a.m. when your alarm goes off. The passenger van is 20 minutes away. You roll out of bed and jump in the shower. Put on your clothes and grab your bag. Light a cigarette and walk outside. This is the first day of production. You hop in the car and the AD hands you a coffee plus a printout of the day's schedule while Igor's there already at work. He's comparing the shot list to the day's printouts while the costume designer is using her parka as a pillow and catching some extra sleep before set. Mediana's in the back. She's reading a book. She looks up at you and she smiles. And you both laugh. It's an hour drive to the first location and when you arrive through the window you can see that the whole place is already buzzing with energy. The electricians are laying down cable through the snow while the gaffer and his team finishes setting up lights and the art department is unloading props from their trailer. You're in range of the walkies now and the radios start to chatter. You hop out of the van and the questions start coming. Minor emergencies from every department and the work begins. The car from scene 64 is arriving two hours late so you'll have to get that sequence after lunch. The flying rig for tomorrow's stunt is having problems and they need you to take a look. So you're shuffling the schedule, reimagining shots, and answering every question as it comes. You visit the makeup trailer to pump up the actors with some final notes from rehearsal and remind them that they're going to be great. It's 6 o'clock and you start shooting in 30 minutes. It's time to get to set. So the AD grabs her walkie and tells the crew that the director is flying in. You shout with excitement and bound crunching through the snow. You're always shouting on set because you can't control the thrill. You're in the living room first. So you enter the tiny wooden cabin to see how it looks and Mariana's inside already waiting to show you her work. She's transformed a dilapidated rural property into an alarmingly accurate period farmhouse. Completely rebuilt the structure to mimic its original Soviet specs from the 1940s and completed it with hand-carved wood and meticulously aged walls. She can tell you're happy with it and that makes her happy. The actors are flying in. The team of set dressers is running around and touching up final details as the actors take their place, rolling their necks and running through their dialogue under their icy breath. Igor sits on the dolly and he lines up a shot before asking you to take a look. 
The AD tells you that there's 90 minutes to get this scene before you have to move outside and stay on schedule. Your phone buzzes. It's a text from your mom, and she's wishing you luck and saying that she loves you. It's 6.30 a.m. now. The sun is burning the edges of the horizon, and you are burning time. So it's time to roll. Maybe the script isn't perfect. Maybe you're 31 and not getting any younger. Maybe you'll never be the next David Fincher or Damien Chazelle or whoever the fuck you thought you'd be. But today you're on the set of your movie, and you worked hard to get here. There's a 40-person crew, and they're all looking at you. For today, you're a director. You're telling stories for a living. And it's the best fucking feeling in the world. All right, here we go. Quiet, please. And three, two, one, action. So I, I'd be curious to know what you remember about working at the farmhouse. Do you remember the first day? Of course I remember the first day because the location was like two hours from, from the main city. And that was also the problem when we were shooting the movie because every day we were traveling two hours to the set and two hours back to the city. And it was very bad conditions because of the weather. So we were traveling, uh, some days we were traveling much longer. So. It was very demanding for all the crew because of the cold. I remember I was always cold and I can't imagine how it was uh, for the actors because they were always like wearing a thin, thin, uh, thin costumes. But I think we all like gave a lot of energy on everything. And I was very uh, surprised how you was able to track everything because you were like having this... Uh, rehearsals with actors and also you were always like very interested in everything that we were doing on our set also including the uh, the hairdressers designed for the special effects of course and also for costumes and you were always like there when i i'm thinking about that i can't believe how much energy you had there because you were handling everything and you were always like listening to everyone and you were always like polite to everyone and trying to understand everything although we were like from another country and you were like and we were uh, like speaking in our languages you know and but you were always like there and trying to understand us and it was very very funny because i think you you were like in the center of hell And also everything other and and other stuffs were happening. But you know, this was the main thing. And and I don't know what. What do you mean other stuff? What do you mean other stuff? Other stuff like other stuff like other level of our relationship. Also, I don't. I I can't believe that we had strength for that. Also, like involved in something i don't know how because i was always like in work 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 and also like then then we have this other kind of relationship that we we had you know Mm, so that was so complex very complex um you know i i'd actually like to talk about that if it's okay um by the time that we were shooting, things between us had gotten pretty confusing or complex, as you said. And I'm, I'd be curious to know if you felt, uh, and I know personally for me that there are things that I'm, I'm really critical of myself for and things that I wish I could have done differently. Not in the movie. Well, I mean, yeah, actually, definitely. <laughs> definitely on the movie, too. Um, but what I mean is between us, I know that I, I didn't communicate the way that I could have or, uh, the way that I, I, I wish I would have after left. And I feel ashamed because I, I think that I was really inconsistent and selfish and, uh, I want to apologize to you for that and ask you what what you remember from that period not that it was all bad obviously but i i i feel like i wasn't really there and i was i was hiding from that at the time and pretending that um 
I, I wasn't, I, I know that I wasn't there for you and, and that it must've been, I don't know. I think I'm right in remembering that and I'm talking too much now. So I guess what I'm, what I'm asking is how did you feel about us uh, when, when we were at the farmhouse? Um, we didn't have the time to sit and talk about everything like very honestly, because after she left, I felt angry. I totally understand that you didn't know what to do. And then that was the easier way trying to stay cold to me. But this frustration for me was just because I felt very alone and I had this feeling around you. And I, I was like trying to, understand why we can just talk about it because I think that I'm a person who could understand everything that you were going through and I didn't know why you were avoiding that. Even though I was working my ass off and the crew was killing it, I was also busy designing a whole host of complications for myself and the people around me. Some of those were movie related, but a lot of them weren't because a lot of them had to do with Mariana. She was working hard, but clearly confused by my inconsistent romantic behavior when I suddenly suggested that we put a cap on our physical relationship and just focus on the work. I basically refused to explain anything about how I was feeling. The truth is, I was still drawn to her, so it was hard to stop, but I just felt so much guilt ever since I'd asked Olivia to leave. I didn't know what I wanted anymore, but I certainly didn't want to talk about it, so... One moment, we'd be sleeping together, hidden in our private world after a wrap, and then the next, I'd just close off and disappear. One hour, I was her partner and her lover, and then the next, I was pretending to just be her boss. I couldn't change that. I mean, what what could I do? I mean, you have to work, and you were always, like, defending, okay, we have to be, like, very concentrating, uh, don't do that, don't do that, I don't, I, and I was like, okay, I will not touch you, I will not, I don't know, be around you, trying to always, like, to see what will be your reaction to me, so I was, like, there, and uh, you, <laughs> you were acting like you were acting, like, if you were stopping, then you were stopping, or you were, like, accepting the game and we were like keeping or something after I'd call cut while we'd change scenes or took coffee breaks to keep the team from freezing while cast and crew were huddled together around the industrial sized heaters thawing their limbs Mariana and I would find ourselves hidden in the dark corners of our set of the set that she'd built for us and I just continued to lead her on I wanted to do that all the time but you were like stopping that because you were struggling and I wasn't struggling so much because I knew that I could handle in my work and my emotions but you were not clear about everything that was happening between you and me so it was your kind of struggle you know I knew what I want I mean I was there and I knew what was my capacity uh, that thing that we had wasn't distract me but, despite all that heavy romantic confusion, we had a surprisingly successful first two weeks of shooting. And after our final 20-hour day at the farmhouse, our team was wrapping up and set to get some rest for a few days off prior to launching onto the convent. I was about to head back to a local hotel when the producers let me know that our other lead actress, who I'll call Emma, had arrived in Riga and was hoping to meet with me. Emma was this really rad redheaded actor that I'd cast as our second lead, sort of like the antagonist of our movie. She had this strange idiosyncratic way of speaking and undeniable authenticity, absolute ease, and one of the most unique faces you've ever seen. She was a really cool talent on the rise, and I was stoked that we got her, but driving two hours back to Riga after such a long day, when to sit down and have a drink couldn't have sounded less appealing. But it's my job to make her feel welcome. The movie working is deeply dependent on her crushing it, so her excitement and her commitment are critical, and I didn't want to risk her feeling left out or unattended. So... I got one of the transport guys to drive me all the way back. I threw my bags in the car, blasted the heat, and laid my head on my parka to catch a few hours of sleep before arriving back in Riga. I was going to town to welcome Emma in with a quick drink before bed.
rolled up at about 9.55, and the driver roused me from my sleep. I threw on my parka, lit up a cigarette, and waited out front while I let the cold air recalibrate my brain to wakefulness. I remember pretty vividly that I was staring off into the city, watching snow fall on rooftops, probably looking like a crazy person, trying to do some mental gymnastics and solve a particular practical effect that we'd be shooting the first day of the following week. That effect ended up getting cut from the movie, actually, because it was a total disaster. And while I inhaled my shitty Eastern European cigarette and gazed into the distance, a mop of tangled red hair came bouncing around the corner. She was wearing an oversized, thick-knit, multicolored sweater. Her giant, curious eyes pierced the cold air, and she had this happily displeased sneer on her face that I'd find she wore so often. She looked like the 20-something version of a character plucked straight from the pages of a rolled doll book. I laughed out loud to myself as she strode down the street. Emma has a great sense of humor, and she was already listening laughs from ten yards away. I called out to her. Hey! She landed right in front of me. <laughs> Told me it was too fucking cold here. I said it was, but that it was even colder where we were shooting earlier that day. She said it was beautiful here in Latvia, but a little depressing. I agreed. I said my name's Tommy. Told her it was nice to meet her. She told me that I looked like shit. <laughs> I said that I'd been shooting since 4am and hadn't showered. She just shook her head and looked me up and down. Started walking back towards the door and said, Come on. You are going to buy me a drink. Do you remember going for that drink that night? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I remember I remember coming around the corner and meeting you. And I remember thinking, oh, he's he's smaller than I thought he'd be. <laughs> you seemed quite, like, nervous. And I was like, well, this could be interesting. Why would it be interesting? I was nervous because you could, like, well, pick on you Because you were the person... Because you were the person in charge. <laughs> <laughs> we walked inside, grabbed the table, and I ordered us a couple pints. How's your hotel? It's not great. How was your flight? Cramped. She smiled. No, it's fine. They just have me on the other side of the city in this little room, and I hate being isolated in new cities. I totally get that. She clearly had her guards up, so I tried to loosen up the conversation and asked her to tell me about herself. Yeah, you wanted to know, you wanted me to talk to you about myself. I think I I think I said something like overly revealing to make you uncomfortable. I think it was something to do with, like, having sex with someone. That's the story you opened up telling me? <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any intuition um, about anything happening between us? Would you have suspected that? That something would be no, happening between us romantically? No, because I remember I didn't fancy you. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I didn't. You seemed too controlled. You weren't open enough. So is this movie going to be good? Oh, for sure. A- and I promise it'll be fun. Fucking better be. Dragging me out to fuck all. I smiled, and then she smiled. Oh, God. It was happening. The banter, playful aggression, and in that moment I could feel my face change and my posture shift. Do you smoke? I do. Can I have one? Definitely. Can I rewind? Yeah, yeah, please. Um, did you fancy me when you did I fancy you? Yeah, I fancied you very much. Oh, 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 oh,
we took a few days off, as much as you can in the middle of making a movie, and on the following Monday we packed up the production and headed out to our convent location, which is this neo-Gothic castle called Zafartavapils. And castle really is the right word. It's a massive historic estate on the border of Estonia. There's a large forest and a lake, a giant mill, and an enormous stained glass dome that caps the entire structure. And there were a number of us actually living on site inside the castle, including me and Mariana and Emma. My bedroom was on the first floor, right in the center of everything. So in the middle of the night, when I'd shuffle out to get some crafty from the kitchen, I'd walk through the ballroom that had been converted into our cathedral set. There were walls of stained glass and a massive centuries-old staircase. During the day, we were shooting scenes with dozens of locals dressed up as nuns, chanting and screaming. There were four wind machines and a barn full of live animals. At night, we were lighting up the nearby forest and filming escape sequences sprinting through the trees. There were possession scenes and stunts. Living inside the castle with Mariana and Emma was a little complicated. A budding passion for my red-headed lead, plus a previous and still unresolved entanglement with my now dear friend and designer, provided plenty of opportunity for craziness. Luckily, we were very busy and didn't have a lot of spare time, but even though I was slightly more controlled in this environment than I might have imagined, something was definitely happening between me and Emma. And people started to notice, including Mariana. Our chemistry while working was palpable. I loved the way she worked. I loved how free and funny she was, how enigmatic, and probably how mean she was to me half the time. I'm obsessed with earning the respect and attention of certain people who just don't want to give it to me. On the last night of shooting, we were capturing our final sequence, which took place atop a 70-foot bell tower. There were cranes all around lighting the scene, another giant stunt rig to lift our lead flying off the roof. I'd never done anything like it. That night was wild with wind whipping past us as the storm started brewing, and both of our lead actresses had to be freezing and wet the entire night. And partially because the other lead was so vocal about her discomfort, I think Emma viewed herself as the antithesis of that actor, and didn't complain at all. Not once. Which seemed impressive and ballsy at the moment, all night long, take after take, Emma was delivering an incredible performance under extreme conditions without a single comment about her discomfort. But when she pushed her body dangerously past the point of exhaustion, I didn't notice. We were shooting the final scene, a drone shot where a flying camera starts close on Emma's face, hovering 70 feet in the air, then on my mark flies 300 feet backwards at 60 miles an hour into an extreme wide shot. The drone blades were cutting through snowflakes as they fell through the sky, and I looked up from ground level where I was waiting with the pilot to direct his movement. During our final take, with the freezing wind whipping past their faces, right before I called action the drone started to pull away. I saw Emma's red hair floating in the wind, and she looked down at me. Then suddenly, she collapsed and disappeared out of sight. Everybody began to panic, chattering on their walkies to the stunt coordinator who was positioned atop the tower with the actors. I threw my headset on the ground and ran bursting through the old wooden doors, climbing up the narrow laddered staircases, crawling on my hands and knees. Flight after flight, past hay and props and panicked people still huddled around the heaters. I got to the top and found Emma cradled in the arms of our stunt coordinator. We carefully carried her down the stairs of the tower, wrapped her in blankets, and then the ambulance came to take her away. I rode in the back with her through snow fields and across the icy dirt roads toward the castle where the medics checked her vitals and began pumping her with fluids. The medics continued watching over Emma while I packed up my room and debriefed with the producers. Despite the emergency, we'd been up for almost a full day and the crew had to leave to get some sleep. It was late, and the vans were taking off. My car was waiting for me, but I didn't want to leave Emma's side. Tommy, your car's gotta go. The crew's been up for almost 22 hours. We have to leave. 
Sveta and the medics will stay with Emma. Okay, tell them just one more minute. While I left my team waiting in the van, the medics returned to Emma and before leaving recommended that she not travel right away and rest in the castle till the following day. She looked up at me and asked if I'd stay. I didn't hesitate. Yes. I ran to the van that had already been waiting for me for 30 minutes to let them know that I'd be staying behind with Emma. I slid open the door and found Mariana right in front of me. I locked eyes with her and froze. This person who had sacrificed so much for me, who'd worked so hard, who'd put up with so much. But I only waited a moment before explaining to everyone that I'd be staying behind and see them all in Riga tomorrow. There was an uncomfortable silence. Mariana's face was inscrutable, but she knew just like everybody else did exactly what it meant when I said, I'm staying. I slid the van door closed and trudged through the snow back toward the castle. That night, the convent was essentially empty. Just Emma, me, and a few of the assistant directors and production staff who were cleaning up and looting out. Emma slept with me in my room that night, and while she warmed her body back to health, I looked after her and again I thought I was falling in love. The next morning, Emma and I were driven back to the city. She delayed her flight and stayed an extra day with me in Riga just so we could sit and talk in my apartment. I know that I'm an unreliable narrator at this point, and I've described multiple instances of hyperbolic romantic confusion, but I honestly thought this was different. I don't know if it was some savior's complex, or if it was her talent, her red hair, bee-stung lips, or her acerbic sense of humor, but I thought something cosmic was happening. I thought this was the beginning of our story. We talked about her moving to Los Angeles, and I could already see us getting a house together and having little ginger babies. I could already see the next six months. Five years. The rest of our lives. But there wasn't time for any of that at the moment, because Emma had to head back to London and I needed to wrap production and go home to Los Angeles for post. The next day I drove Emma to the airport and spent the rest of that afternoon just wandering the streets and avoiding calls from Mariana, trying not to think about what she might ask, or worse, what I might say. I had 48 hours left in Riga to close up shop and say goodbye to six months of my life, all culminating in a rap party that Justan was hosting the next day. Nobody thinks that they're a bad person. I mean, not really. But when I look back at the way... <clears throat> it's fucking embarrassing. Well, I think you are experiencing what was so seductive to me when I was there because in America, Cary Grant says, well, give this kid a shot. You step off the plane in Latvia, in Riga, and someone picks you up from the airport, takes you to a nice hotel. They view you as who you want to be. They, they talk to you the way that you want to be talked to. They, they give you the respect that you want to have earned. But maybe have it totally. Maybe there's a reason that it's not, you know, the right time. No one knows any of that stuff. They just assume if you're the American director that's been plucked out of all those other American directors in that pool and you're here doing this, then you must be talented. And suddenly you're kind of living the dream that you've been striving for for so long. Your dick just got a little too big for your pants. It's an interesting thing to have sort of deleted from your memory. Future ex, Mrs. <laughs> what do you make of that? What do you think that actually and all of that's gone means? When you're in why do you think country? you would have not remembered that? Do you do you have any insight into that? There was a, there was a movie within a movie. You were living a movie while making a movie. And I thought that thought it, it would ruin. Yeah, ruin. I thought it would ruin me, and I I sort of forgot that. Part of it was you kind of throwing yourself into everything so fully kind of knowing that like you were living this thing that was going to be formative somehow. Like I'm going to be able to use this. So I'm willing to kind of be that like Nick Carraway and the great Gatsby where like, I'm this weird journalist who's like throwing myself into a world. I don't belong. All right. And cut. Okay. We're going to go for one more and then we'll get out of here. Should we take it away? No, like, we just have to... I think that leads us to 
the final and most intense experience of the entire trip, and that was our rap party. And I've mm-hmm. told this story to many friends from my perspective, but you are the person who was closest to it with me. And I would love to know what you remember from before the rap party to during the rap party to after the rap party, as much or as little as you feel comfortable talking about or as much as is vivid I think I remember a lot of it very vividly and that's what inspired this entire podcast you don't remember it or you you remember it very clear like I think I remember it very clearly I remember the story that I tell but I'm really skeptical of people's memories you're always trying to get something or, or, or yeah okay so without telling you anything I would love to know what you remember from that night and what happened mm-hmm. to us or to you um, because I have mm-hmm. a very specific memory of that evening so I'd love for you to tell me I, I didn't have any suspicion in my mind that he would gave us the drugs and not telling us Thank you.